You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. There was a pause in the Israel-Gaza war this week that led to numerous hostages being released. There were concerted efforts by the United States, Egypt, and Qatar to turn these pauses into an actual ceasefire. That has not happened. Israel resumed its strikes on Gaza within an hour of the expiration of the latest pause this morning. So what does this mean for the remaining hostages? Well, joining me now, national security reporter for The Washington Post, John Hudson joins me. John, welcome to First Look. Hey, good to be with you. So Secretary of State Antony Blinken seemed hopeful yesterday during a meeting with Israeli President uh, Isaac Herzog. Here's what he had to say about the efforts to free the remaining hostages. We have been focused relentlessly on trying to secure the release of hostages from, uh, from Gaza and from Hamas. And we have seen uh, over the last week the very positive development of hostages coming home, being reunited with their families. And that should continue today. So, John, given the resumption of Israel's combat operations, where do things stand with um, talks to secure the release of the remaining hostages? Right now, there is an absolute scramble going on. And uh, as you know, the mediation going on is happening in Qatar, the country that has ties with Hamas and has been able to mediate uh, all of these discussions between the Israelis, the Egyptians, the Americans, uh, and try to get these hostages out. There are around 137 hostages remaining in Gaza. Uh, During the pause, 81 uh, Israeli citizens uh, were able to get out uh, as a result of these hostage negotiations. But obviously, the resumption in fighting is a huge blow to efforts by the United States to continue the pauses as long as hostages can get out. Uh, it was a quite dynamic moment, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken being in Israel uh, and taking off um, just as the fighting resumed, right after giving remarks saying that these pauses are good, they allow humanitarian aid to get in, the pauses allow hostages to get out. Uh, there had been a hope to continue this, and now we have accounts from our colleagues at the Post uh, of of major fighting continuing, um, airstrikes happening in Gaza. Um, uh, you know, the likely you have accounts that uh, dozens have been killed or injured in Gaza. Uh, it, it is just everything that they have been trying to keep uh, keep a lid on is now uh, ripped off. And there is a huge effort to just try to continue uh, and, and get this, uh, get these cease, get this, get the temporary ceasefire and get the negotiations back on the table. So, you know, you had a, a, a terrific story earlier this week about one of the members of the Biden administration who was integral in trying to keep the lid on all of this, and that is CIA Director William Burns. Um, and he's been playing a key role in, in hostage negotiations, but in other negotiations. Explain why he's been so important uh, during this crisis. 
Yeah, it's been very interesting, right? You have the CIA director, this sort of legendary diplomat who has more diplomatic experience than anybody else in Biden's cabinet, uh, sort of taking on a bigger and bigger role uh, that has to do with many different sort of elements of this conflict, but centering around hostages. So the reason that the CIA director is sort of the key hostage negotiator right now is because his counterpart is Mossad intelligence chief David Barnea. Uh, that is the man that they've both been secretly flying to the Persian Gulf and having these meetings uh, and hashing out everything they can about what type of people are going to be released first, when it's going to happen, what's the ratio of Israeli hostages released versus how many Palestinians are released from Israeli prisons. Um, all of those issues are being hashed out by uh, Director Burns. Uh, Burns, sort of a longtime State Department official, was the Deputy Secretary of State, uh, also served as the U.S. Ambassador to Russia. He is the man that President Biden has relied on for some of the most difficult missions that he's set out for him, whether that means flying in secret to meet with Russians and warning them against using nuclear weapons in the Ukraine conflict, or flying uh, in the dead of night uh, to Afghanistan, uh, just as the Taliban uh, are taking over the country to try to secure assurances from the Taliban uh, that Americans and Afghan allies can get out of the country. Uh, Burns is really the difficult fix-it man, and he's, he's back in action on this conflict now. Um, I want to get you on one thing, and I don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot, just in case you haven't had a chance to read it yet, but in that other uh, big national newspaper, the New York Times, its lead story on the front page has the headline, Israel, new Hamas's attack plan more than a year ago. Um, any idea, has that story had any impact on the dynamics that are happening on uh, in the region that, that you know of, given the time that it is over there? Yeah, Jonathan, one important dynamic that it's having is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has long been uh, in a very vulnerable political solution, uh, situation since this conflict arose. Um, there were immediate complaints about uh, intelligence failures. How did the Israelis' uh, security state allow this to happen? Uh, it was thought that the Israelis' security measures were the best in the world that they had these automated guns, that they had these walls, the iron wall that would protect Israeli citizens from uh, Hamas militants. And that was shattered. And the New York Times report is the latest in a, a line of indications that the Israelis did have warnings about what Hamas was scheming, what it was capable of. The remarkable thing about the New York Times reporting is how specific the Hamas planning was that the Israelis obtained uh, well before this operation was taking out. Uh, a mission that included, you know, paragliders, a mission that included attacks on these remote controlled machine guns that are posted on the walls. All of that spelled out um, in the New York Times documents that they obtained. Uh, and so it, this is something that brings greater scrutiny greater criticism on Netanyahu for why his government wasn't more prepared, why they didn't have more brigades uh, around uh, Gaza instead of the West Bank, 
uh, where um, uh, Israeli forces have done a lot to try to protect uh, Israeli settlers uh, who are continuing uh, to take aggressive actions against Palestinians there uh, in a move that has been of greater and greater concern to U.S. officials, including Secretary Blinken. Mm -hmm. John, let me get you on one more thing before I have to let you go. You had reporting along with our colleague Yasmin Abu Talib about the internal dynamics at the White House over the president's response to the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, talk about those dynamics and how they're impacting President Biden's vision for the region after the war is over. Is there any kind of consensus among senior Biden administration officials? It's a great question. Uh, to the specific question, is there consensus among senior Biden administration? There is largely consensus among senior Biden administration officials. These are long season sort of veteran foreign policy hands. None of them have particularly divergent views when it comes to sort of essential policy decisions, whether or not the United States should push for a ceasefire, uh, uh, whether or not they um, should, uh, you know, essentially, you know, push Israel to the to the brink. Um, these are officials who have, are have largely sort of status quo views and ha have not been supporting a ceasefire. Meanwhile, at the same time, there is a rank and file, senior and mid level uh, number of foreign policy practitioners who are very disheartened at what they have seen in this conflict, given the thousands of casualties uh, and the, the loss of civilian life that has just been so rapid and so fast. They're the ones who have submitted uh, dissent channels through the State Department, uh, open letters at USAID, uh, uh, opened up group chats, whether that's at the Pentagon or the White House, among Muslim and Arab Americans who are quite upset about where the policy is going. They have been trying to air their concern that the United States should push for a ceasefire. Um, and so the White House has really been trying to manage uh, the diversity of views across the administration in that elite um, section right behind, right surrounding President Biden. There is a lot of uniform unanimity on views. Um, they're just not in the place on pushing for a ceasefire. They believe that there's a you know a bigger political cost. Uh, to breaking with Israel, and they're not sure that even if they did break with Israel, um, whether they would be able to uh, move it on these important issues. National security reporter for The Washington Post, John Hudson, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. We're going to keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists E.J. Dion and Hugh Hewitt. E.J. Hugh, welcome back to First Look. Thank you, Great to be with you, Jonathan. So this question is for both of you, but E.J., I want you to go first. Your reaction to the news this morning that um, Israel has resumed combat operations uh, in Gaza. I mean, I think that's what was anticipated. Secretary Blinken was trying to hold them back. And I think to square the circle of what John Hudson was talking about in that excellent uh, presentation. I think that the position of the Biden administration is that the attack on Hamas, trying to uh, essentially as best that they can uproot Hamas, is a legitimate goal and even essential to the two-state solution that the administration very much supports. I think what the administration is hoping is that this big bombing campaign will stop. 
And I talked to one senator yesterday who's very sympathetic to Israel, who said that what Israel has to think about is how this bombing campaign, if extended over a long period with this great loss of life, um, will leave Israel potentially isolated in the world. There are other countries that have supported Israel uh, who are getting very uneasy with this kind of campaign. Uh, Biden has been as supportive as you could be of Israel in this fight, uh, but he also doesn't want Israel isolated and the administration is worried about civilian deaths. Mm -hmm. and, and Hugh, I would love your reaction also, all, primarily because you've written a column where you said nothing should deter Israel from preempting another attack like the one they endured on October 7th. Well, Jonathan, good morning. Good to see you. And I, I want to say, I think EJ is right that Secretary Blinken tried to hold Israel back. And I want to preface, I've been talking about this for three hours on the air, so I want to be very careful that you understand what I'm about to say. I think diplomacy is very hard. Sometimes big mistakes are made, like Dean Acheson at the Press Club in 1950. War is even harder, especially wars in Israel. Yitzhak Rabin had a breakdown during the 1967 war. Moshe Dayan had a very famous breakdown during the 1973 war. It's hard on everyone. But I think Secretary Blinken's meeting in Israel yesterday, where he told Israel that they didn't have the credit that they needed to destroy Hamas, followed by that rather disastrous press conference in which I don't even know how to frame it other than it was a complete and utter message to Hamas that we're going to pull the rug out of Israel, do what you will. I think yesterday will go down as one of the worst diplomatic face plants in history. And I don't think Hamas understood correctly the resolve of Israel to destroy them. And I think Hamas got the wrong message from Secretary Blinken yesterday that, as EJ said, the United States was trying to hold Israel back. And so when they screwed around again and they fired rockets this morning and they held back the list, uh, the war cabinet, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, Defense Minister Gallant, Minister Gantz, decided that's it, that's done. Uh, they're trying to hold us back in the United States. We're going to go and finish the job and Hamas will be destroyed. So I think that's what happened. And I think it's perfectly explainable given the sequence of events that EJ and John Hudson just referenced. Okay, I don't so think now that was a face plant by uh, Secretary Blinken. I think the administration is worried about what Israel may end up doing to itself, depending on how it wages this war. The administration is not against uprooting Hamas. But it, it argues, and I think correctly, that Israel has to think about the impact of this. That New York Times story uh, a few days ago about the power of the bombs being used and all that, I think that's having an effect around the world. And Israel is not going to save itself if it becomes completely isolated. And so I think there are ways of waging war against Hamas that uh, reduce uh, they reduce civilian casualties. So I just don't think that was a face plant by Tony Blinken. So g given, the, given this foundation that you both have laid, even though you're disagreeing about the effectiveness of Secretary Blinken, talk, talk about today's front page lead story in the New York Times with the headline, Israel knew Hamas's attack plan more than a year ago with the subhead, a blueprint reviewed by the Times laid out the attack in detail, Israeli officials dismiss it as aspirational and ignored specific warnings. What impact, EJ, you first, impact do you think that will have on the dynamics on the, gro on the ground there in Israel and in the region, at, especially with combat operations resuming? 
Well, I think it's just one more report suggesting that uh, the Israeli government under Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, just missed what was going on. They were so obsessed with putting troops on the West Bank that the south of Israel, these settle, these kibbutzim that have been there a long time, were left unprotected. They underestimated uh, Hamas's capacity here. Uh, it'll increase pressure uh, to uh, remove uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. He is unbelievably unpopular in the polls now. Now, it'll depend very much on whether people, uh, his majority in parliament crumbles. Uh, but I think this is just yet another report about how uh, this government missed what was going on. Uh, Hi, Jonathan, I think I want to make a few things clear. We don't know if that report arrived under Prime Minister Naftali Bennett or under Prime Minister Yair Lapid because Netanyahu has been back a year, so we don't know when it was arrived. And it reminds me of, it's sort of the acceleration of the 9-11 sequence in the United States. If you all remember, we spent a year and a half arguing over whether or not uh, W knew that, or ought to have known, that an attack was coming. And everyone came to different conclusions that that was nonsense. It's just, uh, I, I think the PDF mentioned something about Osama bin Laden one day, and, and it didn't register as a threat, but other people treated it as a threat. Here's what I do know. After every war, Israel does the most comprehensive after-action report, as they did after 1973, when they uh, were the subject of strategic surprise achieved by Syria and Egypt. And everybody got fired. Uh, Golda Meir's career was over as well. But they wait until the war is done, then they impanel a distinguished group of people, and they do what our 9-11 Commission did. And they will find out who struck John and who didn't get the warnings. But I'm not going to jump to any conclusion. Israel does that better than any country in the world, and they do it again and again and again. I'll bet you EJ agrees with me about that. They will have accountability in Israel. Uh, I'm right, going to give right. you a chance. Go ahead. Go ahead, EJ. Oh, no, but I think the issue here will be political accountability. And what if the an Israel, polling in Israel shows that at this point, uh, if there were a new election, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu would lose by a landslide. That's how Israelis are judging this situation. Two, two, two points. Um, uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, we learned that the headline on, what, on one of the uh, PDBs, presidential, the presidential daily brief, his intel briefings was bin Laden determined to strike within the United States. Um, and then the second point, to Hugh's point, about you know when the war is on, all the wagons are circled, and once it's over, uh, Israel will do a, a, a comprehensive report on what happened. When I interviewed the former um, foreign minister and vice prime minister, um, Zippy um, Livin, uh, I, know, um, I know I'm getting her, her name wrong, Livni. but it was worth... What is Livni. it? Livni. Livni, yes, 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 Zippy Livni. Um, I asked her about Prime Minister Netanyahu and you know his prospects. She said, I'm not going to talk about um, the prime minister from an oppo you know, opposing party while we're at war, but I'll just say this: he should no longer he you know he should no longer be our prime minister. He shouldn't stay. But that's after they get the job done. So make those two points. Let's shift gears because we got a lot to talk about <laughs> and and not a lot of time um, the, here at home. The 2024 race. Um, Presidential candidate Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, former UN ambassador, got the endorsement of the very rich, very conservative Koch family network. Hugh, 
What's the significance of their support and will it help her and them in their actual goal of trying to knock Donald Trump out of his seemingly inevitable clinching of the Republican presidential nomination? Well, let me translate Republican activism for the benefit of my Democratic friends here. Uh, AFP is libertarian, and they really don't like Donald Trump. They've never liked Donald Trump. The Koch brothers, when both of them were alive, never liked Donald Trump. So AFP was not going to go with Donald Trump. Uh, it certainly helps uh, Ambassador Haley in New Hampshire because they have a ground operation there, which is terrific. But we have to mention that Ron DeSantis not only had a very good night last night on Fox, which matters in the Republican primaries versus Gavin Newsom, he picked up Bob Vanderplatt's endorsement last week, uh, the most probably influential activist in America who's not elected to anything, doesn't serve on the RNC, and Governor Kim Reynolds. And Iowa and New Hampshire are both notoriously volatile. So I have no idea what's going to happen. People keep saying to me, I just, I just have no idea. And I think it helps Nikki Haley, but I don't think it's necessarily consequential. If, if I had to bet money, I'd still bet that Donald Trump will be the nominee and it won't even be close, but things change. Two questions for you, EJ. One, did you watch the DeSantis Newsom debate? I watched the whole thing. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you agree with Hugh's assessment of the governor of Florida's performance? Uh, no. I, I mean, I think the fact that he was doing that debate is a sign of how much trouble his campaign uh, is in. Uh, because you wouldn't debate a governor who's not in the race at all who was very relaxed um, because um, he didn't have as much at stake as DeSantis did. Uh, you know, you may be right that some of uh, DeSantis's talking points landed with his uh, base, but he looked much more defensive and Newsom uh, was much more on the attack. Indeed, at one point um, he said, you know, he, he, he almost came out for Nikki Haley uh, and said she would probably beat him. So, I don't think that helped uh, DeSantis. Uh, the one thing I agree with you on is that we don't know what's going to happen um, in Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, but when you simply look at the long trajectory of DeSantis's campaign, he was ahead of Trump after the 2022 elections in, uh, in the polls. He has now fallen far behind and in some uh, in New Hampshire is behind Nikki Haley. Uh, his campaign has had all sorts of internal uh, dissension um, so that you've got to say that if there are up and down arrows here, Haley is the up arrow and DeSantis is the down arrow. EJ, hey, um, let me stick with you real, real quickly. We've got less than five minutes left. But today, our colleague uh, Robert Kagan has an extraordinary piece with the headline, A Trump Dictatorship is Increasingly Inevitable, We Should Stop Pretending. And EJ, you recently wrote, and I'm quoting here, over the next year, the survival of democracy should be sent the, the central issue in American politics. Real quickly, explain why. Well, for two reasons. One, I think for many of the reasons Bob described, we have reasons to fear, good reason to fear from Trump's own declarations that this administration, uh, a new Trump administration, would be uh, ready to run over every guardrail that protects our democracy from weaponizing um, the Justice Department, his now famous reference to his opponents as vermin. Um, a new Trump administration would be extremely dangerous, and he wouldn't have people around him uh, who might restrain him. Indeed, he wants to 
prosecute the people in his old administration who were trying to restrain him. The other threat is coming from a steady attack on voting rights. I wrote about this Eighth Circuit decision on the Voting Rights Act. Uh, you know, Justice uh, Roberts essentially eviscerated Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, which required preclearance of various voting rules to protect voting rights. This court, against all precedent, against Congress's clear intention, against the practice of decades, said, sorry, outside groups like the legal NAACP Legal Defense Fund and others and individuals can't bring action under Section 2. That would make the Voting Rights Act completely ineffectual. And our colleague Ruth Marcus had an excellent uh, column on this. So I think we're fighting de uh, for democracy on two fronts. One against the threat from Donald Trump and the other against this continuing steady attack on voting rights that we pay much less attention to than we do Trump. Hugh, we've got less about two minutes or so left, and uh, I'm going to end with you because Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State, one of the biggest figures in the history of American diplomacy, died Wednesday at age 100. Uh, he was revered as much as he was reviled. You interviewed him several times on your, on your radio show. What is his legacy? Dr. Kissinger is simply too big to summarize in two minutes or two days or two years. I did get to spend a lot of time with him in the last five years, and I did get to interview him a few times and met with him in New York. I will simply say there is no equal in the annals of American national security history to the role he has played from 1969 forward. And the unpacking of that, of all of it, I would send people to his books on China and leadership. Remarkable man, remarkable intellect. What an extraordinary story, as you noted, John. He's very controversial, depending on where you sit and what your view is. But like Metternich, uh, he's just going to be a figure who will be studied by history for as long as history studies national security and war. Um, I, as anyone who watches First Look knows, I don't know how to tell time. So we have a, a little bit of extra time. E EJ, uh, I'll give you the last word on Henry Kissinger. Well, you know, I thought uh, David Sanger in the New York Times had a really superb uh, obituary, I thought. And he wrote that he, you know, Kissinger is hailed by some uh, as an ultra-realist who should reshape foreign policy, but he has been reviled by others uh, uh, with about his relationship to human rights, his undermining human rights as uh, a central to American foreign policy. Um, and so I think this is a complicated figure. He's obviously important, but I think there are a lot of people on both the left and the right uh, who think that his ultra-realism um, there's there's a good case for realism, but the kind of ultra-realism Kissinger practiced did not always lead the United States down the right path. And with that, we will leave it there. E.J. Dion, Hugh Hewitt, as always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks, gentlemen. You too. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.